Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come! And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. In this chapter in Matthew, he covers the topics in rapid succession of the persecution of the disciples in verses 1 through 12. And then remember he made a provision for the disciples in the feeding of the multitudes in verses 13 through 21. And now he is going to give us yet another demonstration of the protection of the disciples in verses 12 through 36. The murder of John the Baptist. The miracle in the wilderness. And now the miracle on the waters. I don't need to tell anyone here or within the sound of my voice that we're living in an age of storms. Bitter winds are blowing. There used to be a song in the 80s that went something like, Is it just me or have you felt a bitter wind against your soul? I do believe the world grows colder every day and the hearts of men are frozen with a fear they can't control. Much of our resources are dedicated to anticipating storms, surviving storms. There are a foolish few who believe that they have adequate resources to survive anything that the devil might throw their way. And right now, some of you are facing some of the fiercest winds that you've ever known. Financial storms, relationship storms, marital storms, health storms. And when the storm comes, we have a tendency to somehow kind of go into a kind of survival mode. Perhaps God in his grace has given you a period of calm before the storm. Praise the Lord. Your marriage is fine. Your business is fine. Your children are fine. But rest assured, like the warm waters of the Pacific Ocean, things are heating up and El Nino is brewing. And the gale force wind will come. I once read the story of a Danish king named Canute. He felt that his power and his resources were invincible and inexhaustible. 
And one day the members of his inner circle were flattering the pompous king. And to demonstrate his power, the king ordered that his throne be lifted up and that he be taken to the shores of the sea. And the tide was rolling in and threatened to drown the entourage. And the most regal voice that the king could muster, he said, Calm, be still. What do you suppose happened? The waves crashed right in on him, swept him up. It's interesting to me. The waves didn't stop. And the king said to his admirers, Behold, how small is the might of kings. You see, whether we like it or not, there are some things that happen that won't yield to our control, that won't submit to our will, that won't go away because of our manipulations. And it's also interesting to me that the psalmist wrote in Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations I'll be exalted in all the earth. We sometimes simply forget that the Lord is going to be exalted. His plan is going to come through. He will be with us in life's storms. And the storm, remember, has the capacity to change you. The storm has the ability to make you better or make you bitter. But storms can serve as an opportunity to provide humility and dependence. Storms shatter the illusion that we're in control of our finance, that we're in control of our children, that we're in control of our health, that we're in control of our business, that we're in control of our country. And for some of us, that we're in control of our mind. <laughs> Sometimes our mind goes places and does things, and you simply ask the question, where did you go? If you want assurance that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you, then you're going to have to look somewhere other than the Bible and the promises of Jesus for support. The Bible promises storms. If you want a false promise and if you want false hope, you can look elsewhere. Real hope is in God's word and real hope is in God's son and real hope is in God's plan. And in this passage, if you'll just look with me quickly, you're going to find five assurances of the king. Let me spell it out to you, and I'm going to spell it out to you over and over again. The first assurance that you have from the king of the storm is that, number one, he set you there. Number two, he sees you there. And number three, he will come to you in the storm. And number four, he will speak to you in the storm. And number five, he will safely deliver you from the storm and take you to the place where you belong. Look again in verse 22. He set you there. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he sent the multitudes away, what you don't know from the text, because it's written elsewhere, that the reason why he's sending the multitudes away after he has finished feeding them is because after this gigantic outpouring of provision, everyone wanted to make Jesus the king. Hey, let's have a king who can feed us every single day. When somebody promises you, hey, guess what? You'll never, ever have to worry about food ever again. You'll never have to worry about shelter ever again. If you are dealing with a person who promises you everything, they also have the ability to take everything away from you. It says in verse 23, when he sent the multitudes away, 
He went up to the mountain to pray by himself. Now, when the evening came, he was alone there. I want to draw just a couple of quick things to your attention. Look what it says. The Lord Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. He made them get into the boat. Jesus set them there. They were acting under orders and instructions. I want you to get into the boat. I want you to take a journey. And I want you to make it to the other side. And in that just that very small window, we get a glimpse of what's going on in the church. And in the individual believer in our present age, in our present state, Jesus is on the mountain praying. The disciples are on the lake battling the storm. My friend Warren Wiersbe writes, Jesus is in heaven interceding for us while we fight the storms here on the earth, unquote. And that is exactly right. There's a real Jesus who's gone before us. There's a real Jesus who really is in heaven. There's a real Jesus praying for us. The disciples aren't in the boat and in the storm because they did something wrong. It's because they did something right. And as you can imagine, your circumstances typically fall into one of two categories. You're where you are because you made some very bad choices. But sometimes that's not always true. It could very well be that you are in the exact place that Jesus has set you. That you are in the place not out of rebellion or disobedience because you have decided that you were going to do something right. Some storms come because we make foolish decisions. But Jesus sets them in the boat with instructions. Go before him to the other side. And the disciples are in, let's be real, the disciples are in the right boat going in the right direction because they made the decision that they were going to do the right thing and obey Jesus. And maybe some of you have been in a situation where you go, hey, wait a minute, I prayed a prayer. Hey, wait a minute, I opened up my Bible and I opened up my heart and I decided that I was going to do what Jesus wanted me to do in relationship to my marriage, in relationship to my business, in in relationship to the world in which I'm living in. Well, didn't Jesus know that a storm was coming? What do you guys... You guys are fairly good at this. What do you suppose the answer to that is? You know the answer. He knew the storm was coming. Just like he knew the storm was coming in your life. He knew about the difficulty and the setback and the pain. Storms shouldn't come to us as a surprise. We know that Jesus has already told the disciples, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The Christian isn't just simply invited to believe that perhaps a storm is going to come. The Christian is promised tribulation. The Christian is promised suffering. The Christian is promised persecution. The Bible says for those who will live godly in Christ Jesus, that they'll experience persecution. But Jesus is praying. Jesus is praying. And Jesus will come for us. And Jesus will come to us. And Jesus will speak to us. We learn from John's gospel in chapter 6, verse 15. Again, why Jesus was so quick to dismiss the multitudes after the, the banquet. They wanted to crown him King Jesus. But this king knew that he would have a crown of thorns pressed on his head before he would ever have the opportunity to wear the crown of David. People are ready, willing, and able to serve the king of prosperity, but they'll shake and stumble and balk when adversity comes. Jesus sets you in the storm and then prays for you in the storm. And the fact that Jesus sent his disciples into the storm, again, listen carefully, doesn't imply that Jesus has abandoned them just like when you suffer Pain, problem, setback, 
difficulties. It doesn't mean that that God is far away. It could mean that he's been closer than he's ever been before. A person called me on my radio program from of all places, Hollywood, California last week. And he says, I've lost my faith. And I said, well, let's just see if we can help you find where you left it. There's pain and there's problem and there's difficulties. And I said, you never read in the Bible where there would be pain and problems and difficulties? People have hurt me. People have betrayed me. Difficult things have happened to me. So you feel crushed and brokenhearted? Yes. According to the psalmist, he's near to those who are brokenhearted. He's near to those who are crushed in spirit. Are you broken and crushed. It doesn't mean that God is far away. It it could mean that he's been closer than he's ever been before. Neil Strait writes, prayer lifts the heart above the battles of life and gives it a glimpse of God's resources which spell victory and hope, unquote, So pause for just a moment and think about that just for a moment. When the storm hits and the waves start crashing in, what's your immediate response? Is it to pray? Do you pray in the storm? Some of you will say, I absolutely pray. I pray, get me out of the storm. Make her go away. Make him go away. Make the problem go away. Make the difficulty go away. Make it go away. Get me out of this marriage. Get me out of this job. Get me out of debt. Get me out of the hospital bed. But rarely, 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 rarely do we pray, will you, will you change me? Grow me? Will you mature me in this situation? Change my heart. Destroy my pride. Cleanse my wickedness. Remove my anger. Deal with my bitterness. Help me with the fear. Because when you pray that prayer, guess what? You're inviting the Lord to Again, work inside of you, creating the character of Jesus within you. And by the way, that's part of the mission of our church. Part of the mission that I have as your pastor that I long for each and every time that I see you is how can I help you? How can I encourage you? How can I make you, encourage you to be a little bit more like Jesus? That's the whole goal. Forming, shaping, molding. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed into the image of his son. God is at work. God is at work changing us. And there seems to be two kinds of storms. There's the correcting storm and then there's the perfecting storm. The prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jonah gives us illustrations. The prophet Jonah, you'll remember, gives us an example of the correcting storm. God had a job for him to do. But so so the Lord said to him, hey, you know what? I want you to go speak to a group of people um, that judgment is coming. And he goes, I hate these people. I hate them. I hate what they did to this nation. And I hate what they did to my family. I hate them. I hate them. And in case you didn't know, the Assyrians were a group of people who would find you. They would cut off your head. They would leech the skin off of your skulls and build pyramids, a tribute to their philosophy and ideology and their cult of death. And he says, I'm not going to do it, and I don't want to do it. And he ran in, the, in a different direction. He tried to run away from the will of God, and he tried to run away from the plan of God. And, and then God blew him right back where he had belonged. God placed him in a storm so that he had no choice but to go in the direction that God would have him go. And even then, he was stubborn. He was stubborn, just like Well, I won't use you as an example. I guess I'll use me. 
some of you, sorry, some of, some of us would rather die than obey God in a given situation. And that's what Jonah decided to do. He says, you know what? I'm a prophet of God running from God. So, hey, if you want all of these storms to go away, you're going to have to throw me overboard. And when you get thrown overboard in the middle of the Mediterranean, it's a death sentence. It was his way of saying, just go ahead and kill me now. And they, in fact, did throw him overboard. And the Bible says that a great sea creature that God had prepared for him swallowed him. And then began to swim in the direction that God had always intended for him to go. And scholars are torn whether or not he was really alive or dead when all of that happens. But people who actually believe that the Bible is true aren't torn whether or not a great sea creature could swallow you and take you to the place where you need to be. Someone once said that. They said, how can you be sure? I mean... This sounds ridiculous. It sounds so ridiculous. Jonah being swallowed by a whale. It just sounds crazy. Well, the Bible doesn't say a whale. It says a sea creature. Well, it still sounds crazy. Do you believe it's true? Look, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. What if he's not there? Then you can ask him. You're swallowed and taken to a place where you don't necessarily want to go. As a matter of fact, when I read this passage, I said to myself, why didn't they just turn back? Why didn't they just turn around? Why didn't they just say, look, this storm is incredible. The wind is blowing in the wrong direction. Let's just go back to where we started. Why should we even buck the storm? But you'll remember in verse 22, they were supposed to go before him. Jesus has said, I want you to go in this direction and love them or hate them. They said, Jesus told us to do this and we're going to actually try to do what Jesus wants us to do, just like some of you. The Lord Jesus has asked me to love my husband and love my wife and pray for my children and do what's right. The Lord Jesus has asked me to pray for our leaders. The Lord Jesus has asked me to do specific things and certain things, to be generous instead of selfish. And if your heart belongs to Jesus... There is no storm, there is no circumstance, there is no problem that's supposed to undo the work of God who is in you. And so the storm has come either to correct you in life's journey or to perfect you in your character so that you can be different. Jesus points us in the right direction. It's Jesus who defines our destination. And look what it says in verse 24. Not only has he set you there and prays for you, he sees you there. In verse 24 it says, But in the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. As we've taught through this gospel, I've repeatedly reminded you that the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Tiberias, if you will, is about seven miles long and about three and a half miles wide. In the ancient days, it, was, it might have even been a little bit bigger. And Matthew places them in the middle of the lake. How far is the nearest shore? In John chapter 6, verse 19, it gives us a, a sort of an approximate distance. They, they thought maybe 25 or, or 30 stadia. Stadia is the amount of length of space that it would take to run around a chariot track, which was about a quarter mile. It was a, about the same distance, about 400 meters, when you were in high school and you had to run around that track if you had to run around that track. So that would mean that you're about three to three and a half miles from the shore. 
In Mark's gospel, in chapter 6, verse 47, it says, When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake, and he was about to pass them by. So what does Mark tell us? That even three and a half miles, and there is a dark, desperate storm with swollen waves and they're in the middle of nowhere and the truth is they're not going to be able to swim to shore. He sees them from his place of prayer. He sees them struggling in the storm. Just like you. He sees the exact circumstance that you face. He sees the circumstances that you're in and the friendships that you formed and the relationships that are at risk or the financial issues that you face. Everything, everything. He, he sees you. When, the, when a person has the ability to see everything, that's called omniscience. Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything about everything. The word that you would use to describe someone who has all powerful is the word omnipotent. He has the ability to see everything and everyone and he has all power in order to address the problems that exist. He is God. He sees you in the storm and because he has all power, he can help you in the storm. And if you look at the text itself, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves. That word tossed is a very interesting word in the original language. Basanidzo in the Greek language. Basanidzo was a word that was used by the ancient Greek people to describe someone who was being tortured. It meant to torment or to torture. And so when it says the boat is in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, the implication is a sense of ill will, torment, torture, if you will. Battered would be a better word. And this is exactly the point that is being made. We live in a world where difficulties can come and they affect you and then all of a sudden they deprive you and they burn you and they hurt you and they do all kinds of tragic things. The disciples didn't choose this storm. The storm chose them. Just like sometimes the storm will choose you. And again, remember, sometimes you can do what's right and be in the exact place that Jesus has set you and still experience problems. You went to church, you read your Bible, you paid your taxes, you honored your marriage vows. Sometimes obedience can bring about distress and suffering and persecution. Dietrich Bonhoeffer obeyed God, defied Hitler, and wound up in a Nazi prison cell. Corrie ten Boom, the author of The Hiding Place and Dutch Patriot, lost people in her family, herself imprisoned in Ravensbrück concentration camp because she hid Jews in the Holocaust. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, young missionaries to the Aka Indian tribe in South America, found themselves in a place where they wanted to, in love, reach a group of people who, had who, who were presumed unreachable landed their plane and were attacked by the tribe and found themselves face down in a muddy riverbank with spears sticking out of their back. And unless you know the rest of the story, you might think this was a gigantic waste of time. But the missionaries' wives went there and they themselves showed up to the people who had murdered their husbands and devoted their life to continue the work 
which they began. We read in the New Testament that pain and suffering and hardship and, and persecution is a reality, but sometimes we toy with the idea that perhaps this will be the generation exempt from trial, and I might be the person who is exempt from the diagnosis, or I might be the person who can... And with all my heart, believe that God wants me healthy and trouble-free and problem-free. And thank God for every problem-free and trouble-free moment that you get to live your life. But we read of the storms in the lives of Peter, and Paul, and James, and John. And we're foolish. If we draw the conclusion that, that, that suffering and sacrifice was the exception and not the rule. Paul takes the mystery out of the subject in Romans chapter 8 verses 17 and 18 when he writes whether we want to believe it or whether we want to accept it. Now if we are children then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory, I consider that the present suffering isn't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. And then you say, I don't want to follow in his footsteps. I don't want to follow in his footsteps. I don't want pain. I don't want suffering. I don't want trial. I don't want difficulty. That's not what I want. The tragedy is whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, guess what? We live in a broken world. And can you imagine, can you just by simply wishing the pain away make the pain go away? Spurgeon told his congregation, great hearts can only be made by great troubles. The spade of trouble digs the reservoir of comfort deeper and makes room for consolation, he wrote. It was his way of saying, before you become too preoccupied with the pain and the problem and the suffering, there is a trench that is being dug inside of your heart to create a wellspring so that you can give people hope, comfort, Jesus set you there. Jesus prays for you. He sees you there. But he's not a blind and uncaring savior. He loves you. Watch as he comes to the disciples in the storm. Look what it says in verse 25. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night, if you're reckoning Roman time or Greek time for that matter is between 3 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the morning. The fourth watch of the night. You've all heard the expression, it's always darkest before the dawn. You know that. Jesus comes when the lights are out. When the darkness is thick. And the circumstances seem hopeless. The wind is howling. The waves are raging. And it might be a dark time for you. It might be a very, very difficult time. But the Lord shows up and delivers in the most remarkable way. Like the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace... Like Daniel in the lion's den, you can see the flames, you can smell the smoke, you can see the yellowed remains of the former carcasses that have been eaten by the lion as he growls at you. And Jesus comes. Jesus comes walking on the water. You know what's interesting about that very, very statement? 
the water is the thing that's threatening them. The water is the thing that can hurt them. The water is the thing that can drown them. The water is the thing that can take their life. And sometimes Jesus will show up on the very object that is threatening you. Whether it is a relationship situation or a painful situation or a health issue, Jesus can show up and simply be the person who is going to demonstrate his ability to overcome whatever it is. And remember, the disciples at first don't recognize him. It says in verse 26, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. They've exhausted their physical resources. And again, the text says they were troubled. We might more accurately translate this. And they were scared out of their wits. They're terrified. Troubled is what happens when the Broncos lose. Terrified is an entirely different word. And they are terrified. But it's a terror that also, remember, has been born out of deep difficulty. Their strength is gone. Remember what I said earlier? Jesus put them in the boat during the morning. It says when evening came. That means, guess what? They have already been out on this lake for at least eight hours. They've exhausted their physical resources. The waters are swollen. It's biting their faces. They've been at it all night. And Jesus comes when all strength has failed and hope seems gone. And I suspect the vast majority of, of the disciples were at a point where they just simply couldn't pick up the row, the, the oar, one more time. They couldn't pick it up even one more time. And the disciples at first fear that they're seeing a spirit. And in this impossible situation, Jesus does the impossible. He walks on the water. You know, it's interesting to me, some of you may or may not be familiar with Egyptian hieroglyphics, but the glyph in the, Egyptian, in the ancient Egyptian language for the, for the word impossible was you would make waves and then you would put two tiny feet on top of the waves and it meant in the Egyptian language, impossible. Isn't that interesting? And that's what Jesus does. He does the impossible. He comes on the substance that they fear the most. It's the water that threatens them. It's the water that looks like it might prove to be the source of their death and the destination for their bodies. And he comes again on the object that they fear the most. And sometimes he'll come to you in the pain, in the deprivation, in the difficulty. In the diagnosis, in the darkness, in the stillness, in the distress, in the loneliness, in the, in the failure. So what is it that you fear the most? What is it that you're most afraid of? Because the thing that you fear the most might be the thing that God wants to use to bring you comfort and assurance Jesus comes to the children of Israel in the furnace. Jesus shuts the mouth of the hungry lion. There was a Christian captain of a large ocean-going vessel, and they were in the middle of a storm, and terrified, one of the passengers says, What are we going to do if the ship sinks? And the captain said, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be embraced in the arms of an everlasting Savior who loves me and died for me. What's the worst thing that could happen? When you know Jesus, it's the best thing that could happen. And he speaks to you in the storm. Look what it says in verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It's I. 
don't be afraid. Yeah, you, you have to appreciate the humor. They're exhausted. They're terrified. And he identifies himself. When I read this passage, I couldn't help but think back to a, a, a television show that was on called Twilight Zone. And it was a, you know, a creepy series that talks about crazy things. And they made a movie, Twilight Zone the movie. And, and there was one particular episode with John Lithgow. He plays this frightened and nauseated passenger on what appears to be a doomed flight. And he is full of fear. And his worst fears are realized when he peeks out the portal of the plane. And there is a guy hanging from the edge of the wing, screaming hysterically. And when you're in a terrifying, life-threatening situation, the last thing you want to hear is insane laughter. But Jesus brings comfort and hope. The words of Jesus make all the difference. It's not a ghost. It's not an angel sent to escort them to the other side of eternity. God's word is filled with comfort and hope. And guess what? If it's been a very long time since you've heard the voice of Jesus, then I'm going to invite you to listen, to open up your Bible. And hear what Jesus has to say in the storm. And there's two scriptures that have served me well over the years. When I need to hear Jesus speak, I'll, I'll turn to Romans chapter 15 verse 4 where it says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And in Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Holy Spirit. What's the source of hope? The Word of God and the person of God. God's Word speaks to us like nothing else in life's storms. And when the wind is howling and the waves are raging, the scriptures invite us to take refuge. In the safe harbor. That's Jesus. And look what it says in verse 28. He safely delivers you in the storm. And Peter answered him and said. Lord if it's you command me to come to you on the water. Now I, pause for a moment. Don't you think this is odd? Is that what you would say? Hey guess what? We're all doomed. But if it's really you. Hey I'm just going to risk it and be doomed right now. I think two things are odd. First, it's odd that they didn't recognize him. The second thing that I find odd is that, Jesus, that Peter makes the statement that he makes. Now, pause for a moment. Fear and anxiety and fatigue can make you say and do crazy things. And I'm going to suggest to you that it also has a way of clouding our vision. Jesus exhorts them in verse 27. He reveals himself in verse 28. And this should give us a picture that instead of freaking out in trial, we're given an opportunity to faith out. Hey, you know, things are going bad and things are very, very difficult. But I'm, you know, instead of getting all upset, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to ask God to help. I'm going to, I'm going to trust the Lord. The citizens of Nazareth didn't recognize him. Mary Magdalene at first was unable to recognize him. Her vision was blurred by tragedy and tears. And sometimes I'm going to suggest to you that we can be a little bit blind when Jesus actually shows up. And why does Peter make this strange request? To show up the other disciples so we could get his name and in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'm going to suggest to you a simple answer. And I don't know if it's the right answer, but I'm going to suggest a simple answer. I'm going to suggest to you that for all of his strengths and weaknesses, 
Peter wants to be with Jesus. He wants to be with him. And if this is really him, there's no better place to be than with him. He wants to be with Jesus in the storm. And even if that means leaving the boat and going into the water, he's making a choice. If it means leaving the boat and going in the water in order to be with Jesus, then that's what I want. And look what it says in verse 29. So he said, come. And when Peter had come out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And the experience of Peter provides us with a boatload of application. How in the world is he going to walk on the water? Romans 10, 17, Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the, of the Lord or word of God. And he said, come. And Peter hears the voice of Jesus and he responds to the voice of Jesus. And the secret of surviving the storm and doing the impossible is to hear his word. And believe his word and respond to his word. In verse 30 it says, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. When are we most likely to stumble in the storm? When we forget the source of comfort. When we forget the source of power. When we forget the source of promise and hope and it would seem that Peter, just for a moment, he takes his eyes off Jesus and his attention is once again redirected to the storm. And that's exactly what some of us do. We just look away from Jesus and back on the circumstances. And look in verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretches out his hand, catches him and says to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What's comforting is, even when we fail... Jesus is never far away. He stretches out his hand and he catches you. What if I step out on faith and everything goes bad? He stretches out his hand, he catches you. No wonder, years later, Peter would write, 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. He doesn't write that in a vacuum. This is a statement that's deeply informed by real-world experiences. You know it. I cast all my cares upon you. I lay all of my burdens down at your feet. And any time I don't know what to do, I cast all my cares upon you. And look what it says in verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. The Lord Jesus comes walking on the water. And the moment Peter and Jesus are back in the boat, the storm ceases. John's gospel adds in chapter 6, verse 21, then they willingly received him into the boat. Hey, welcome aboard, Jesus, welcome aboard. And it adds this, and immediately the boat was on the land where they were going. There were two miracles. It wasn't just simply walking on the water. The moment that Jesus got into the boat, they all looked up and they were safely on the shore. And that's exactly what Jesus will do for you. When he delivers, he delivers big time. And it says in verse 33, then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him saying, truly, you're the son of God. The people in the boat worship Jesus. He's delivered them in the storm and the people in the storm, they've begun to grow in their understanding and they begin to grow in their understanding of themselves. And that's what will happen to you if you let it happen. The storm brings deeper appreciation and understanding both of Jesus and of yourself and each other. Jesus stills our storms and then he takes us safely to the destination that he's appointed for us. When Jesus shows up, he will take you to the exact place where you need to be. The place where you were always intended to be. 
Someone has said that there's no safer place to be than the exact center of God's will. I think that's true. But if I said to you, it's a safe place, it's an easy place, it's a pain-free place, it's a place where you'll never have to suffer, it's a place where you'll never have to sacrifice, it's a place where there might be some difficulty, then I'd be misrepresenting what the Bible says. But there is no safer place. Because guess what? He set you there. He sees you there. He'll speak to you there. And then he'll come and take you to the exact place where you need to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive and submissive to you. Lord, we pray that as we hear of the difficulties, of the challenges and the trials that we face, that insensitivity and compassion, that, Lord, we would extend to one another the needed support that we need. Lord, we pray that we would be willing to say the words that Jesus would speak. Be of good cheer. It's me. I've shown up. Lord, in those dark places where the voices are so loud and the challenges are so difficult, Lord, we pray that we would be willing to bow our heads and bow our hearts and hear the voice of Jesus at the beginning of the storm for direction and in the middle of the storm for direction. And so, Father, again, we thank you for our Jesus. We thank you for our loving Lord who cares for us. Lord, we pray that we would be ever mindful that if we're in the place where Jesus asked us to be, that he has the responsibility to see us and to care for us and to take us to the place where we belong. In Jesus' name.